Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. Nearly one in five adults in the United States experience some form of mental illness in their lives. The conditions and severity vary widely and are distributed throughout our population, but has increasingly been felt in the younger age groups and impacting children in their formative years when they are most vulnerable and their brains, in particular, are not fully developed, nor are their coping mechanisms. Later on, the pandemic, which single-handedly turned everyone's life upside down, creating strains on our work, family, and social worlds, and the inevitable result is even more stress that manifests in increasing numbers of people with mental health and associated disorders of substance abuse and addiction. We already had problems with substance abuse, with the opioid epidemic now well-recognized, and many locations desperately trying to fight a rearguard action to mitigate the devastating impact these drugs have had. But it gets worse. The addition of synthetic opioids that, thanks to their additional potency, makes them a much more economic option for the drug dealers than traditional opioids, are exploding in our communities. But that very potency is also a big contributor to the increasing number of deaths linked to the overdoses that even prior to the pandemic had increased by over 50%, and early indicators suggest an acceleration of overdose deaths during the pandemic. Healthcare? We have a problem. A big problem. Join me on the Healthcare Upside Down show as I talk with Tim Doran. He is a board member at Presum Healthcare whose career has focused on making behavioral health care available to as many people as possible. But as you will hear, even his background and focus was not enough to help his own son. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Nick. Thanks for having me. So uh, I think everybody has some sense that we have a big mental health problem, big substance abuse problem. But how big is it? So prior to the internet expanding, a young adult really was influenced by his family, his classmates, and maybe his neighbors were however far he could ride a skateboard, bike, or walk, and maybe teammates in a sport. That enabled a parent to really know what was going on with the child. Well, then the internet came about, and first it was Facebook, Twitter, all of these other influences that you and I as adults, they influence our opinions and what we do, but our minds have matured to a certain level. 
as a child, they're gaining access to things that are really outside of their neighborhood, which is causing them to act out, to see the world differently, to be depressed, to judge themselves, to look at themselves internally uh, differently. If you carried that on from the age of eight into 14 to 18 year old, boy, you know, those ages are hard enough. And then you take it into adulthood and it is without any um, medication, any help. By the time people are 30, I would say most families have someone within the family who is undiagnosed with a behavioral health, mental health or substance abuse issue. After 18 years in the behavioral health industry, working literally up and down the East Coast, I, in most cases, whether I'm on a plane, at a restaurant or meet somebody new, tell them what I do, I would say seven out of 10 times, and it could be more, a family member of that person has been afflicted with this disease. And to tell you how prevalent it is, this is a personal story, Nick, and I'm not sure if you're aware of it. I have four children and my youngest, unfortunately was afflicted by this disease, both behavioral issues and led to a slight, slight substance abuse problem. And he's 18 years old. And unfortunately on May 5th of this year, um, he died of an overdose of fentanyl. And I have access to the best care in the world. And he went to all of it. Unfortunately, that's how difficult it is to fight mental health, substance abuse, and the influx of really poison in fentanyl. I can deal with a drug problem, but I cannot stop murder through fentanyl. So I hope that helps. So first of all, I, I, you know, I, I'm dreadfully sorry to hear that. I can't imagine uh, you know, the pain and agony that that must have. And thank you for sharing that story. Um, I think it resonates with every parent on this uh, planet that is struggling to sort of navigate this issue. I think you um, eloquently outline the challenges that we all face, both as individuals, but also as those trying to guide uh, the next generation further layered on by um, a disease and indeed a substance that is causing tremendous problems uh, to our community. Despite deep insights, um, you were unable in this particular instance to help. Um, how do we go about changing that? What's wrong with this system that is preventing us from delivering what I think everybody would agree is the, the goal of, you know, supporting our youth and community to emerge and become productive, happy human beings? Very good question. If we go back in time, family problems were kept inside the house and everyone had an uncle or a father or mother who had a problem or knew someone who did. And there was a lot of shame involved. Well, that shame has now been lifted, fortunately. And to the credit of the Obama administration, through Obamacare, some of the legislation was directed at behavioral and substance abuse. 
prior to that, insurance companies weren't required to give access or pay those bills. Post 2009 and into 11 through 14, they started to build a network and gain access. And at that point in time, we had a, um, a uh, Oxycontin epidemic nationwide. So they clamped down on the Oxycontin, which led to a heroin problem nationwide, which ultimately led to a fentanyl problem. That access to care increased significantly with the creation of Obamacare. Since then, multiple um, federal legislations have increased uh, the ability of Obamacare to help people. And it's really been led through CMS seeing and eyes opening that, wow, there is a problem. And most people didn't have access to a psychiatrist, a therapist, et cetera, that those doors opened further. Then when we hit COVID is really when, when the shackles came off and people could in a private setting get onto the internet through telehealth, which was truly a breakthrough. And it took a lot of capital going into telehealth in all different areas, teledoc being you know, the darling initially, but as someone who witnessed firsthand, it was a breakthrough for behavioral health, both because there's a barrier to entry if a therapist is $500 an hour. Most people can't afford that. Going on, on telehealth enabled those prices to come down dramatically, encouraged payers who are really the, the top of the spear in this process to price it so that it was affordable for most people. And they didn't have to get in a car and go there, be in person, disrupt their day. That breakthrough has enabled now telehealth isn't the solution by itself. You always need the option of brick and mortars, but it's an entry point. And more can be done and is being done. The next big breakthrough, Nick, is going to be primary care, doctors, practices, multi-doctor practices, joining forces with the behavioral health industry in collaboration, whether it's through EMRs, electronic medical records, collaborating, having an affiliation, and insurance companies opening a network where through telehealth, it, it, it looks like it's going to be affordable. It could be as fast as things happen during COVID, I've seen major regulation changes. It could be as soon as another three to six years where more and more people have ease of access. So you, you bring up some critical points and, you know, I think your, your uh, detail of the, the journey through substances is quite informative here as I think about this and the failure of sort of addressing, you know, this isn't just substance abuse. It goes much deeper than that because when you remove the substance, people transition to others. And now we have a, a far more lethal um, substance involved that is causing even more misery. Um, that telehealth enabled interactions that were more economic, more widely available. Is that the driver here that we need more technology um, and more access, or what is it that really drives us 
to a better outcome that, you know, changed from that home environment where, you know, it was hidden and not perhaps not managed, or maybe it was managed better within that community. Is this openness part of it? What are the key elements of this? So there needs to be a touch point where a patient can be candid. How are you feeling? In the 90s, you would see a doctor, they ask you, what's your your level of pain, and it went from one to 10, and the AMA came up with this to register pain because they felt it wasn't, it wasn't right for people to be in pain, which was the start of Oxycontin. Well, on the reverse, if there was a chart, you go to the doctor and he says, tell me on a scale of one to 10, how are you feeling today? Five is normal, one is sad, and 10 is I'm great. It's a point for people to start having the conversation. And if that occurred in a telehealth setting, certainly if we move the needle with 10% more people gaining access, if it's 10 million today that seek help and next year it's 10 or 20% more, we're going to impact that number because it's only somewhere between 20 or 30% of the overall population is afflicted with a mental or behavioral or substance abuse problem. And they're on the peripheral to begin with in many cases. We need to give them access, identify the problem, and then collaborate, because most of them certainly have not just behavioral substance, they have physical problems, comorbidities. If it drags on to later in life, you're looking at diabetes, heart disease, many other issues that as a doctor, you know, they all, if you trace them back to the roots, go back to limited access of care. Telehealth has opened those gates. And I've read the information, the number of services and behavioral that are being delivered. There's more services done in 2022 already on a telehealth platform that are done in person. It's already out past that number and the dollars being generated is surpassing it as well. So it sounds like good news, you know, on the tail end of this, there is, you know, solutions and capabilities, but I, let's go back to the starting point. It's, you know, opening that door to, uh, I guess, an acceptance, um, asking the question in, in the right way. I mean, we talk about this a lot, words matter, and in this case, the difference between how much pain, how do you feel, uh, and an openness. How do we start bringing more people in? You know, and as you described, they're out in the periphery. What What is it that we've got to do to allow for this? Where Where is the focal point? Is it through employers? Is it through uh, service providers? Is it through the physician practices? What What are you seeing that is opening that door so that we can allow more access to those services that are being generated? So good, very good question. There were blocks to it years ago due to the, starting with shame. It's okay to talk about it now. I think you broadly, there's probably 15 data points to talk about all the way to a young adult interacts with whether it's a coach, a teacher, they need a therapist, medication, doctor, a neighbor, a friend. It's not a topic you want to tell someone, you know, I think your child might have some issues. It's usually we leave it up to somebody else, such as the school. I believe 
through the flow of information, people are okay with admitting that they have a problem more so than we used to. The continued message that it is okay will draw more people in to naturally talk about it. Then you have the, the, the companies or the leaders, CMS and commercial insurance providers, they really have a big stake in the game in addressing the problem early, let's say 18 years, rather than waiting till they're in deep depression, on the dark side at 35, suicide's been attempted, all their lives are falling apart. Now it gets expensive. Whereas if we looked at that substance, that behavioral, what's causing, what's the underlying issues at 18, we have a better shot at curing them. But America in general, we wait until we get hit with the disease and then we cure it rather than being proactive. And in being proactive, there's a new product out that we haven't talked about. It's called PDTs prescription diabolical therapy. It was created in 2016 by the FDA. You literally can go to a nurse practitioner, a PA, a primary care doctor, or a psychiatrist. They're the only authorized prescribers. They went through an FDA clinical trial and were approved. There's 14 applications on the market right now approved by the FDA. It's primarily focused, Nick, is around behavioral health and substance abuse. There's some for diabetes. There's some for heart disease. What is it? Well, someone writes you a script and you access an app. And through that script, you get to the app and get authorization. And then you have to do modules. I personally haven't seen it yet, but I understand the general concept. There might be 17 modules that you go through over the course of 60 or 90 days that proven through clinical trials that if you participate in these, you're going to do better physically and mentally. Um, one of the companies is known as Pair Therapeutics. Um, they have a very good product on the market. There's others that are out there as well. Insomnia is being prescribed for as well, which comorbidities, insomnia, substance abuse, mental health, they all come together. The, these modules are done via the internet. Are they alone the solution? No. Is telehealth alone the solution? No. All of these things combined with one-on-one -on -one therapy, other accessing to make yourself feel better um, physically, and then seeing a doctor, all of these things together are going to improve the American society on a mental standpoint. So I, I think good news is, you know, prescription digital capabilities, which, you, you know, uh, folks have a good sense that that reduces cost, increases accessibility, assuming that you can bridge the divide of um, uh, inequity that exists in some of that. But, you know, put that to one side. But as I listen to this and I think about, you know, the, the population that you described that's coming up behind us, we're talking about a huge expanse. There has to be a big, what I, I consider a bubble. Is this going to overwhelm the system? And if so, how do we sort of cope with that? So the public's told that we don't have enough access of 
clinicians and therapists and psychiatrists. That's a fallacy. We actually do have them. What we don't have is a centralized location to find them. You can always find a primary care doc, go to an urgent care of the hospital. When you need a psychiatrist or a therapist, you really have to do a lot of research because there isn't a network created by the insurance companies or CMS. Do I see it improving? Yes. Is it a hurdle that's tasked with money? It is. It's expensive. I don't think they have a solution for it yet. Telehealth is going to help bridge that solution where myself, if I was a psychiatrist, I can do a 10-minute session and give you a prescription potentially three times a month and then maybe once every six months you come in to see me. So the technology is really enabling a single individual because we have tons of access to help people. Our underprivileged or those that don't have resources or knowledge, we need to do more as a society to bring them to the center. If all they have is a mental health problem, and I'm not downplaying it, and that's what's holding them back, we have medication. We have places to go. If they could get it, just imagine the increase in productivity of our workforce, people coming out of poverty and feeling part of society again. There's a lot of that, both in rural and inner city locations. We have to make it known that there is access. Make it affordable. So I, I, I think it sounds, you know, on the one hand, good news. There's resources, there's capabilities, there's new emerging uh, technologies that are going to help sort of launch and um, expand access. Um, but on the other hand, we've got, you know, contributory causes at the back side of this, and we need to address that. Perhaps start with data, um, understanding, and importantly, making sure that we connect those individuals and the people that maybe are on the front line that can understand this. You talked about teachers, uh, you know, huge group uh, feeling uh, or, or certainly presented with um, individuals. So I, I think there's opportunity. If you had one closing thought, what would that be? There's hope. There's, there's, there's access. And I'm confident that the federal government and state and local governments are constantly improving this and that telehealth is a big move upstream to increase access, clearly. I think it's a game changer. And we're headed in the right direction and a lot of change has occurred in the last few years. Tim, thanks very much for joining me on the show. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. Tim's heartbreak is repeating itself throughout our country for many parents, brothers, sisters, husbands, wives and children. But there is an availability of resources and we do have regulatory support that is working to deliver access and improve the availability of behavioural health solutions, including new and innovative digital therapeutic and health offerings. For this to bring about change, we have to connect the need with the resource. It's not good enough to say we support mental health, we care about our employees and their well-being, 
It extends far past the employees to their family and the people that make up the whole person. Families, especially those whose healthcare services are delivered through that employee's healthcare plan, must be included in our view of responsibility. But it goes much further to the extended family and the individuals that are part of the community we inhabit. We are a product of our community and supporting everyone in it becomes all of our jobs. That support comes in many forms, but starts with acknowledging mental illness as a disease. Like any other, it may not come with a clear cause like a bacteria or virus or a cancer cell, but has the same characteristics and requires the same understanding and acceptance. Your better pill to swallow is creating the supporting environment that is truly open, honest, and allows for real vulnerability for everyone in your community and business. And it's supported with resources that are not only highlighted, but made easily accessible for anyone to access in the same way we offer access to pharmacy benefits or gymnasiums. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown, and join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone. Thank you.